right, and we are back. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And in our exploration of faith in our previous episode, we were joined by Wes McAdams, one of my personal favorite guests that we have had on this program. He's such a joy to talk to, and Wes is back with us once again for part two of our conversation on complementarianism. Wes, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, buddy. So in our last episode, we discussed complementarianism. Come on, Kevin. Don't get yeah, tickled. Buddy. Yeah, yeah, buddy. buddy. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> buddy. Now you got me tickled. Well, in our last episode, we discussed complementarianism, and we talked about it from really a 30,000-foot view. And in the terms that we discussed it, we we talked about how the complementarian position is one that has been often abused. It's one that has often been misused and misrepresented by those who have abused it. And whenever we consider complementarianism in the biblical sense, what we see is, is that God made man and woman of equal value, of equal importance, absolutely equal in his sight, yet they have distinct functional roles that they serve within society, within the church, and within life. And the man's role as the leader of the family isn't one of superiority and one under which he rules with an iron fist with a woman under the heel of his boot, but rather he rules his home as Jesus would lead. He leads as Christ leads. He leads in a selfless way in which he loves his family. He loves his wife and he is willing to lay down his life for her. And whenever we consider leadership in those terms and we consider complementarianism in those terms, I really believe you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who would disagree with those terms. And we had a great conversation about that. And if you've missed it, we strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode, part one of this discussion. But part two is going to deal more with what a lot of folks think about whenever these terms of complementarianism and egalitarianism are discussed, especially within a religious context. And that is what are the roles or the positions that men and women have in their service of the church? What are their roles within worship? Because there's a lot of people that believe that any gender roles whatsoever are outdated. And that's a position, even as I have moved in a, I guess you would say a more progressive direction in a lot of ways, that's still one thing that I buck up hard against is this idea that all gender roles are outdated. I, I still, I don't go that far. That's a bridge too far for, for even me at this point. But whenever it comes to worship, it, it's hard for me to hold to the same perspective that I held before. And there's a lot of people that believe that those particular positions are outdated, that they're misogynistic, that they're boorish, that they're chauvinistic, and that they don't allow women to have any kind of voice whatsoever. And there are a lot of folks that believe that these are unchanging universal rules that are put in place. Um, uh, first Timothy two comes to mind. First Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 come to mind. And especially those things. So that's really what we're going to deal with in this episode. And Wes, I just want to thank you from the bottom <laughs> of my heart for being willing to come well, on and talk yeah. about this because in our day and time and in our culture, this is not an easy discussion to have. No. And, and Wes, thank you. I just want to second what, what Lee said, because we're, you're kind of painting a bullseye on your back here, because no matter how you answer these questions, you're going to um, have people who don't like it. <laughs> and and we we already discussed prior that we're all big picture people. We, we try to look at the Bible, not in just isolated verses. 
but we try to look at the story. We try to understand the gospel then and how the gospel can be applied now. And, you know, I want to go ahead and give a disclaimer that Wes has so graciously uh, volunteered to come on to discuss these with us. And so we ask that whatever we discuss on this podcast, this isn't a matter of trying to, you know, don't please don't pigeonhole anybody here. This is this is us trying to have an honest conversation and all three of us agree that there's a quite a bit of gray area in this because what might be right for one congregation may not be right for another congregation. And we even see that in the first century where Paul oftentimes would give different instruction from one to one, you know, one church to another based upon their situation and what was happening there. And so all of the answers given here, please give Wes grace. Um, let's not take Wes out of context or us out of context for that matter. I hope that's the case in any podcast episode we do. But I also really, I really want to give that um, courtesy to our guests, though, because, you know, Lee and I, we get on here and we just kind of uh, a lot of times give our musings and things of that nature. And, and, and Wes and I, we don't have any type of employed uh, ministerial status. And so uh, people really can't go to some... Yeah, you mean uh, you mean you and me. What did, what did yeah. I say? You said you and you said, Wes. Yes, Wes, Wes does. is most Wes definitely does. an employee minister. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. me and Lee. Yeah, so you know, Lee and I, we, we don't we don't have to worry about some of those things. People aren't going to go and try to say, "Hey, did you hear what Lee and Kevin or you know Lee and Kevin said?" Well, some people may say that, but um, we, we I'm saying all this just to say try to understand the context of what we're discussing here. Wes is not giving a one size fits all. We're having him on. He's volunteered just so we can kind of discuss this to understand his answers through a complementarian position. So how's that for a disclaimer, Lee? Is that pretty good? That's a good disclaimer. And But I'm, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. There are people who have only heard the caricatured position that this is just misogyny and that the churches of Christ hate women and that women just need to sit down and shut up and say nothing. You know, there are people that have heard that and that's not a fair assessment of the complementarian position as it relates to to roles in worship at all. I mean, even whenever I held that perspective, I wouldn't think that that's a fair way to put it. Not at all. So, and, and one thing that I don't appreciate about what you said though, Kevin, is give Wes some grace. Well, give me some grace too, and give Kevin some grace. Come on. We uh, all we, need a little bit we, of it. Come we don't need now. grace, man. We, <laughs> hey, we, Lord we, knows we, we all need it. We, we need so much grace, man, from the Lord. I, I uh, you know, no, for sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, especially our guests though. We always want to give an extra measure to our grace and we ask our audience to do the same thing. Um, and I think our audience does a pretty good job of that from from just talking to them. I, I really appreciate that. So all of that being said, Wes, let's just kind of jump right into some of these fun verses. And some of this is probably going to be touch and go. Um, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. I mean, there's literally endless scenarios we can present. You know, if, if a woman is in this situation, what can she do here? You know, but we're not going to get into all of those, but we are going to hit some some of those questions because people do want us to engage those questions. And I think they need to be engaged. And so let's go ahead and jump right in. So one of the, the, the main pressing questions that usually comes up when we're talking about this is, first of all, can a woman lead worship and we'll start with just in any capacity. Um, for example, could could a can a woman serve the Lord's Supper? Can, can a woman say a prayer in front of a man? Uh, can a woman 
pray in Bible class? Can she pray in public worship? Those types of things. Is is there a place for a woman ever in any congregation to be able to to lead? Do you believe, Wes? Well, yeah, I mean that that's a great question, and and I think it's um, I think we can start there, but I, I want to make sure that I say as we start. <laughs> Even after the the great apology that you made for me uh, before I even said anything, which I appreciate very much, um, I I do hope that people will go back and listen to the previous episode if they haven't done so already, because I think that's so important for the framework of what we're saying now, because I don't believe that leading in worship is a place of honor. Um, In fact, I I think that, that that has to be said from from the get-go, that when we approach the assembly or when we approach teaching and leading with the same sort of mindset that the world has, the world says, whoever's on the stage, whoever's on this, in the spotlight, that's the most important role. In the kingdom of heaven, that's not the case. In the kingdom of heaven, not only is there equal, equal importance of roles, but, but even so, Jesus would say, the least is actually the greatest. So whatever the least job is that the people in the world, that the secular person would say, well, that's the least important job, then that's the one Jesus would say, okay, that's actually the most important job in the kingdom. So whether that's scrubbing the toilets or taking the trash out or whatever it is, that's actually the most important job. And the the guy that's leading, the person that's up on the stage, that's in the spotlight, that may very well be the least important job in some ways. Now, that's not to demean the role that, that I play every Sunday when, when I teach and preach, um, but but I, I think that, that that has to be said, that, that the person who is teaching and leading is not doing so from a place of honor. And, and I think it's also important to say that I do believe that the place of teaching and leading in the assembly, in that, in that time where the church comes together as a gathered group of, of worshipers, um, and, and we might even get into what do we mean by worship, uh, but, but if by worship we mean in the assembly, the, the coming together of God's people on a weekly basis, that the person leading them is doing so is doing a, a, a heavy burden, is carrying a heavy burden, that this is a responsibility. It goes back to everything we said in the previous episode, that, that this is a position of responsibility. It, it's exactly why you had to give the disclaimer you did a minute ago about putting a target on my back. Because when a person speaks up, they have a target on them. And I believe that men are called to take on that heavy responsibility of teaching and speaking and leading in the assembly because whoever does that puts a target on their back. And I, frankly, as a husband, I don't want my wife to have to take the darts that I have to take. I wouldn't want her to have to deal with the nonsense that I deal with people, deal with from people because I'm a public speaker, because I'm a public figure, I wouldn't want her to have to take those those darts. And so I would want to stand in between the attackers and her and protect her because I think, again, as a complementarian, I think that's my role. My role is to protect my wife from those things. And so when we get to passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, when we listen to what Paul is calling the men of Ephesus to do and what he's telling 
uh, Timothy to do in the church in Ephesus is to raise up these men who will be leaders that he's calling them to do that so that they can be the protectors of the women. And, and yes, I understand that in our context today, it can sound condescending to women to say men are called to be protectors. But again, I, I, st I still hold on to that gospel chivalry that I believe that's our calling to be protectors. And so I, I think that if, if we're just going to limit the discussion to what happens in that one hour assembly time, uh, if that's what we mean by the worship, then I do think that Paul says during that assembly time, the speaking roles need to be reserved for men. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, and we can get into some of the, the, I know you want to bring up about prophecy and stuff, and I think that'd be a, a great place to go. But I, I, I just want to start by saying that I believe the speaking teaching roles, the leading roles in the assembly are, are male roles. And I do believe that it's because that's a heavy burden to bear and men are called to bear that burden. Now, I don't want to presume to put words in your mouth, but this is the thing is, is I don't necessarily disagree with everything that you just said. And I, I tend to agree with most of it, especially whenever you look at leadership as a role of service. That being said, whenever whenever you talk about how that paints a target on your back and you speak to the idea of men wanting to protect women and how that seems to be an outlandish thing in this day and time and how people tend to balk at that. You, you know, I can think of a situation not too long ago where someone, a, a family member got crossways with my wife and I, I have really matured in a lot of ways. My nickname back in my late teens and early twenties was hockey temper. I used to lose my temper at the drop of a hat and I was ready to fight. I was ready to throw down with anybody and being married, having children. And I really think through, through the power of God and through Christ that has subsided to a tremendous degree. I'm much more level-headed than I've ever been. I'm more patient. I still have some issues with a temper, especially whenever it comes to road rage and driving. But but I tend to to try to make peace and try to be, you know, I try to be diplomatic with people. But whenever they got sideways with each other, that hockey temper came back and I was ready to jump right back into the fray. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This conversation you're having with my wife, it's over now. You're dealing with me now. You know, it, it's because I don't want her to have to bear that burden like what like what you were saying. And I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. At the same time, though, I also want to make sure that people don't misunderstand that whenever you say that and whenever I say I agree with you, we are not saying that women are incapable of being public speakers. We're not saying that women can't take that role or shouldn't take that role because they don't have the gift to do it. That's not what you're saying at all. This is not a position that is predicated upon a lesser view of women. It's it's predicated upon the perspective of the job that God has given to men and to women. Women are served or, or rather, I should say women are equipped to serve in a particular capacity and in a particular role in general speaking, generally speaking, most women tend to be more nurturing than what a man is. If, if my kids fall and scrape their knee, they go to my wife. Yeah, I'm a doctor, but they go to my wife because 
mama's going to scoop them up and love on them. I'm going to look at them and say, y'all right, rub some dirt on it. You're okay. Go play. You know, women tend to have a special set of skills that men don't have. And men tend to have a special set of skills that a lot of women don't have. And that doesn't mean that any one set of skills is more important than the other. But I, I just wanted to make it clear that this isn't coming from a place of, of um, what's the word, misogyny. It's not coming from a place of viewing women as lesser than or incapable of doing it. It's merely the, the job that, that God has assigned to men from that perspective. Would that be a fair way of, of saying that? I think that's really good. And I'm so glad that you pointed out that it's not about talent. It's not about giftedness. Um, in fact, in fact it, when you get into 1 Corinthians 14, when you really read the context of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is restricting giftedness. <laughs> we tend to think if you're gifted in a certain area, you should be able to, to, to do that. We should give you the platform to express your gifts. Actually, Paul says, not in the assembly. In the assembly, there's a limit on who can express their giftedness. And he walks through point by point and he says, okay, I know there's a lot of you and you all want to sing a song and you all want to say something and you all want to do these things. Uh, in fact, when he begins that section and he says exactly that, and he says, when you come together, everyone has something to say. He's saying that as an indicative and not as an imperative. We tend to read it as an imperative, as if to say everybody should have something to say. And it's actually an indicative. He's saying, when you come together, y'all all wanna say something. And, and as you read what he says, he says, but you can't. And if there's tongue speakers, only a couple of them, and only one at a time, and only if there's a translator, and if there's prophets, only one at a time, and, and only a couple in the whole service, and women, this isn't the time for you to express your giftedness because obviously there were female prophets in the church at Corinth, but the assembly, Paul restricts not just the giftedness of women, but he restricts the giftedness of a whole lot of people because the assembly isn't the time for everybody to express their giftedness. So when we talk about male leadership within the assembly, we're not saying that men are more gifted or more talented or more capable than women. We're simply saying that, or I'm simply saying that this is the leadership role that God has given to men, not just for, not for the benefit of men, because it's not for the benefit of men. It's, it's actually, when you look at the entire letter of First Timothy, it's actually for the benefit of women as well. It's for their protection. And that's, that's what God called us to be, is he called us to be protectors. And our leadership role is one of protection. So whenever you, you say that, and I think that's beautifully said, in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is where that restriction specifically is placed on, on women learning in silence within, within the assembly. And you had mentioned that women had the gift of prophecy, which is declaring the will of God, which is it's, it's not just for telling a future event. That's what a lot of people think prophecy is. It's speaking God's truth to people is what that is. And one of the questions that I would have as a follow up to that is in first Corinthians 11, there's a statement given if it's OK, I'm going to I'm going to read this. This is, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And here in beginning in verse two, Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man of Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. And in other translations other than English standard, it says the head of woman is man. So instead of a more specific term of wife and husband, it uses that more general term. 
in verse four, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife or, or woman in other translations who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now in this, there's a lot of folks that get into the idea of the covering and what the covering is. Is it a, a veil that they would wear? Is it long and cut hair or whatever else? But within first Corinthians 11, women are praying, women are prophesying. And those on the egalitarian side say that this is within the context of a worship assembly, that you have women who are praying within that context. If that's the case, then how is that reconciled with 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35? Do you believe that that has to do with a worship context, or is there something else going on here from your perspective? And I know you don't speak for everybody who holds that sure. perspective, but just where, where, how do you resolve that in your own mind? That's a great question. And there's multiple ways to, to resolve that, I think. And, and again, both, both sides have to wrestle with that. Um, what's interesting to me is that 1 Corinthians 11 presents not only a lot of problems for the egalitarians because, because there is so much in that chapter about- About the headship this, order, yes. Right. There's this, this hierarchy. There's God, and then there's Jesus, and then there's man, and then there's woman, and there is- all of these signs of, of headship and leadership. And so you you see this, this order. In fact, that not only makes, I would assume, a lot of egalitarians uncomfortable, but it even makes me as a complementarian a little bit uncomfortable to, to think of things in those terms. But again, again, that goes back to this overarching idea that submission is not a bad thing at all, that for Jesus to submit to his father is a good thing. For a wife to submit to her husband is a good thing, especially when everything is working in harmony, because that's the goal. The goal of submission and the goal of leadership even is for everything to be working in harmony. And that's what we have with Jesus and with the Father and with the Spirit is this harmony. And hopefully that's what we have in the church as well. And so, so yes, there are these women who are praying and prophesying. And Paul says when they're praying and prophesying, they need to have their heads covered as a symbol that they're under their head. Um, and so there, there's a couple ways to deal with that. But I read that and, and then I read 1 Corinthians 14. And I think, well, wait a second. In chapter 14, he's specifically talking about the exercising of spiritual gifts, prophecy being one of those. And he restricts women from exercising their spiritual gift within the assembly. So when we go back to chapter 11, we say, well, how does that, how does that fit in there? Because there he seems to authorize it if they're wearing a head covering. Well, I, I believe that he doesn't actually get to the assembly portion of his letter until verse 17. And when he gets to verse 17 and he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you because you come together, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And that's where he sort of makes this transition where for the next few chapters, he's going to be talking specifically about the assembly. Before that, where he's talking about the head coverings and the praying and prophesying, I have to take that as a different context. But again, for first century Christians, I don't think that would be a big deal. For us in the 21st century, we limit Christian life 
to that one hour church assembly. And being a Christian is so much more than that. And even the time we spend together in fellowship and encouraging one another and teaching one another, it should be so much more than this one hour formal worship gathering. And and I think, and I, I use the word formal because I think chapter 14 lays out the formality of the assembly. Paul uses language like, everything in decency and in order. And I know, given all of our backgrounds, that that, that can be abused as well. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, salesman. Touche. Uh, prayer, two songs, sermon, and a closing right. prayer and invitation, man. That's decently right. and in order. <laughs> right. But again, the whole idea is that the, the assembly be something of harmony and that it not be chaotic and that everything has a, a structure and an order. And he does put restrictions on what happens in the assembly. But there are there are hundreds of other hours throughout the week for us to teach and encourage one another. And apparently there were times where Christians were, I don't know whether it was in a house or whether it was wherever they were, that there were women that were praying and prophesying. And apparently there were probably even outsiders that were viewing this. And because there was a lack of head covering, there was some there was some talk amongst the town maybe even about these women and what kind of women these were that were praying and prophesying without even covering their heads. And so it doesn't seem to me that this is part of the assembly. But again, this does speak to the fact that women have always been spiritual. Women have always been capable. Women have always been gifted. And just because Paul restricts the the expression of their giftedness, along with a lot of prophets' gifted, giftedness and a lot of tongue speakers' giftedness within the assembly, doesn't take anything away from their giftedness. And so you have uh, passages like Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, uh, the, the story about Philip, and he has four daughters who prophesied. It, it sounds like from the context of that story that they're at Philip's house. They go to Philip the evangelist's house and they're there in his house and, and he's got four daughters that are prophesying. And so there was a lot of time that the first century church spent in each other's homes and they encouraged each other and they built each other up. And, and both men and women received words from the Lord to share with one another. And, and that was all good and was celebrated. But Paul even reminds them, even in those contexts, even if they're in a home or even if they're out on the street or wherever they are, if a woman is praying or prophesying, she needs to have her head covered as a symbol of her head, her husband. And, and so again, as uncomfortable as that may even make me, uh, because my wife doesn't wear a head covering in any context other than her <laughs> hair itself. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that all I think, again, that actually speaks more to a complementary position than it does an egalitarian position. But I think we need to be careful that because we have complementary position has denigrated women, has taken away from their talent and their giftedness and acted like their only role in the kingdom and in the, the life of Christianity is to be pregnant or be homemakers or cook food or whatever. And that's not the case. Women have always been talented. Women have always been gifted. Women have always been spiritual. Women have always had a role to play in encouraging their brothers, encouraging their sisters, encouraging one another and building each other up. And yes, there are, there are still complementary roles even for that. But I don't think that that specific passage is dealing with the assembly. Well, whenever, oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. 
Well, no, I was just going to say that, you know, we're dealing with so many different texts that we could spend hours and hours upon just each verse. And, you know, I, I want the, the audience to know that we're just, you know, we're, we're trying to allow Wes to give a quick overview, um, you know, as we did with, with Dr. Linda King, because there's just so much you could talk about. And, you know, we, we joked with Dr. Linda King because she, she went in a lot of different places with it and we, we teased her a bit. And because there are just so many different areas that you have to consider, you have to consider, you know, obviously not just the context and the narrative arc, as we so often talk about, but you have to also consider the culture. And then you also have what, what to me makes things very convoluted in all of this is not just the cultural context, but defining what is an assembly. <laughs> and 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 when is it an assembly? And you know what makes something a public assembly? What makes something a Bible class? Because even in growing up in a very conservative Church of Christ environment, that I dare say was what I would not consider a very open-minded, grace-centered church at all. They even still allowed women to speak and talk. Uh, and even make points as long as it was quote unquote Bible class, or if it was after the closing prayer, they would even let women. And I grew up at a you know five hundred member congregation. They would even let women make announcements um, as long as it was after the closing prayer. And I, I specifically remember one time they did not do a closing prayer, and a woman made an announcement, and everybody freaked out about it. And they said, "Well, we had not, we have not had a closing prayer yet." And so. You know, that in and of itself can become almost its own issue to discuss of, well, when does something become an assembly and when does something not? But I want to, I am just curious, and I'm not going to hound you on this point, but I am sincerely curious of, of what your response would be. So if people have not listened to the first episode, please go back and listen. Wes already made mention of that. A lot of this is not going to make sense if you haven't listened because we're piggybacking off a lot of that. And so we're not going to be referring back to that within this episode because we've already covered it. But in that ep in that first episode, we talked about how culture played a big part and still plays a big part in what the roles actually looked like. And so even though Titus was, or when Paul wrote to Titus, he was very specific about what a woman's role looks like and how she needs to be a homemaker. And that, for lack of better words, the man needs to be the breadwinner. Uh, most of us would explain that as, you know, that was a patriarchal society. So a woman actually going out and having a job while it was possible because Acts 17, we read about leading women. Uh, we know about Lydia. But when a woman was married, uh, it was pretty much unheard of for a woman to have the full time job, for lack of better words, while the man stayed at home. <laughs> and even if the woman did work, it was still the man who was out providing. Uh, just historically, we know that to be true. So today we live in a completely different society where, as even you pointed out, within the complementarian position, as you understand it, even if even if the man is still the leader in, in the way that you explained it in the first episode, even if he is the one bearing the responsibility, that that house within that home, they can say, you know what, I, I just I would rather stay at home. And, and my wife, she has a degree. She went to college for it. She's ambitious. I'm going to let her work and I'm going to be the one here to be the homemaker. I'm going to be the, the male homemaker, which in context is a complete reversal of roles. But we would say con I would agree with you. I would agree with you hardly contextually and culturally. Those could still be maintained within a complementarian position. Well, could the same argument 
not be made within these contexts, within what we would call public worship, where if you have a congregation that says, well, look, we've got women here who've gone to school and they're, you know, and, and personally, I know women who are much stronger emotionally than their husbands. Um, you know, I, I've personally, I've known of preachers who uh, have relied on their wives to be the emotional support in the relationship because they're just by, by nature, by personality. And, you know, we have scientific advancements now and we, we understand so much more about the brain and extrovertedness and introvertedness, and we understand dominance and, and just personalities. And so, whereas before it was this idea that men are just tougher by nature emotionally, now we know that's just not the case. And so it could be, but in some situations, the woman is actually the stronger emotional component of that relationship. So in those situations, if you have a woman who is able to lead and you have a woman who loves to lead and worship or teach or preach or whatever word we want to use in the assembly. We're all saying whatever the assembly looks like, we're just going to go ahead and say within that assembly, then would there be anything in your mind that would violate your position, even under that complementarian umbrella, if they said, hey, you know, that was that was a different time in the first century. And we, we still believe in complementarianism, but we believe that women can get up here and pray. We believe women can get up here and, and teach a sermon, give a message. And we don't think that's in any way a violation of the complementarian position within our culture. Um, what would your response be, especially to parallel how you explained it within the home and the role maker? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, again, it comes back to it's not about talent or ability. And I think that that has to be true on both sides of the argument that that because because the complementary complementary position is not about, well, men are just naturally more gifted at, at teaching and leading, uh, then then the response can't necessarily be, well, actually, women are because because, again, I would agree with sure. that, that there are women that are more talented or, or more gifted in, in whatever area we want to talk about. But but I think that it comes back down to responsibility of leadership. And I do believe that that role of teaching and leading um, vocally, verbally in the assembly um, is one that burden of responsibility is given to the men. And I think that's true ac across contexts. I think that's true in every context. Now, what what that looks like lived out in other areas of life, that's that's going to be, to your point, that's going to look a little bit different. But at the end of the day, like we said in the last episode, if the family is not being taken care of, that responsibility is still on the men. And so within the church context, within the assembly context, it is the male responsibility to be the one to get up and to proclaim the word. And something just just occurred to me just now that that for Christianity, uh, symbolism has always been very important. Um, and, and we believe that there is more to symbolism than just the symbol itself. Um, we believe that there's more to the cup and the bread than just the cup and the bread. We believe that there is something that is both tangible and spiritual within that. We believe that there is an incarnate truth in that. 
Um, we believe the same thing with baptism. We believe that baptism is more than just a symbol, that it isn't replaceable with some other symbol, that this was given to us for a purpose and that it, it plays a timeless role. And we believe, and it's more than just being actors on a stage, but there's some of that within the marriage I'm playing a role. I'm living out the role of Jesus in this ongoing drama of Jesus and the church. I'm this little example, this one little example of trying to be Jesus to my wife being the role of the church. And within the larger assembly, the, the men are getting up to proclaim and to teach and to lead within that, that assembly. And if you want to say it's symbolic, symbolic of male leadership and the role and the burden that is placed upon their back to carry this truth forward for God's people and to protect both the women and the children and the men of the congregation. Yes, I would, I'd say that's a little bit symbolic, but again, for Christians, there's more to symbols than just the symbols themselves, that there is a truth that is incarnate in male leadership within the assembly. So I do I do believe that this is an important role, a, a, an important responsibility that men are called to because it is one of both practicality, as we said before, because we're protecting women from the, the, the attacks that go along with being leaders or being in that leadership role, because we're all in leadership roles in one way or the other. Our, our wives and our mothers, every role is a, a leadership role in some degree. But in the assembly, men are protecting the women from the attacks that go with that. So there's some pragmatism to it, I believe, but there's also some symbolism to it as well. And I believe that's that's significant and important for Christians. Well, it's, it's one of those things that is so interesting and it's I, I just, my mind keeps going back to this idea though. Whenever we consider terms of symbolism and we think about the symbolic nature of all those symbols that you spoke of earlier, the, the bread and the cup and the, the leadership and the hierarchy, if we want to call it that, that Paul alludes to being symbolic in, in and of itself towards Christ and the church and things like that. And he uses those terms to describe that and in other places as well. One of the things that I can't help but think about is some of those women who led worship for Israel, for example, Miriam in the sea, you know, the song of the sea after, you know, Israel um, was led across the Red Sea and the waves came down and destroyed the, the Egyptians. You know, Miriam, we might call her the first worship leader for the assembly of Israel. You know, we might consider it in those terms. You know, we look at Deborah in the book of Judges. We look at these these other women who led Israel at different points. And then we come into the New Testament economy and we read about other women who served Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. And we see in Acts whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out and you have um, Peter standing before those those men whenever everyone hears the gospel preach in their own language and and they accuse him of being drunk and Peter's like no we're not sloshed we haven't had enough time it's only the ninth hour of the day what you're seeing or the third hour of the day rather it's only nine in the morning what you're seeing is what the prophet Joel prophesied you know you're seeing you know your old men will dream dreams your young men and your young women will prophesy 
And I've heard some people make the case that on the day of Pentecost, it was only men that were preaching there because women can't preach in public. And I know that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about the worship assembly. We're not really talking about public teaching and all the little plot threads that, that weave into that. And we've said that we're going to keep it to the assembly in this episode, but, but how does that relate to the discussion of the assembly? Because it, it seems to me that there were men and women prophesying on the day of Pentecost that may have something to do with application with the assembly itself. It may not. It, what are your thoughts on that, Wes? Well, I think all of those are really good questions. And I, I think that one thing has to be acknowledged is that that there are a lot of really good examples of women who did some amazing things and even led in different ways. But what is interesting is that those were the exceptions to the rule, right? Most of the time, uh, leaders led anything in Israel's story or even in church history, even within um, the, the apostles, Jesus appointed 12 men. And so we could, on the one hand, say, well, maybe maybe Deborah and Miriam and, you know, these other women that we have these handful of examples, they were the only gifted ones. And so, but we don't believe that's true, right? We don't believe that that they were exceptions to the rule because they were exceptionally gifted. Because again, it's not about giftedness. It's not about talent. It's not about spirituality. That That there have always been gifted, talented, spiritual women throughout Israel's history, throughout the church's history that have always made a huge, gigantic impact on the church and have all led in various ways, whether it be their families or whether it be their clans or their tribes or whatever it was in different times and different ways. But a woman being appointed to a leadership position is very rare in the story of scripture. And so we have to deal with that, right? We have to deal with that and say, does that does that show us that that this wasn't really God's plan to put that burden of leadership on women? And again, the story of Deborah, I think is is one that illustrates that really well, that it was because men weren't doing their job during the period of the judges that women had to stand up and the victory of that battle didn't go to Deborah, but went to another woman who had to drive the tent peg through the head. And, you know, because men weren't doing their job because they weren't bearing the responsibility of leadership. And because they weren't women, God raised up these women uh, to do what they should have done. But so, so again, it's not about women's lack of talent or spirituality or giftedness because they've always been talented and spiritual and gifted. Um, but God has placed that responsibility, that burden of leadership on men. So well, and, and how would that, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Kevin. Well, oh. how would that relate to the event that we see in acts in whenever we see on the day of Pentecost, your, your men and women will prophesy because, and, and this may be a, of more breadth than the discussion because we're keeping it in terms of the assembly. But a lot of times, whenever we talk about women's roles in worship and in the assembly, a lot of time that spills over in the public teaching. Well, then what's public and what's private, what's public and what isn't, you know, how, how do we make that delineation? And that if, if that goes beyond the scope of the conversation, we'll, we'll move on. That's fine. But in, in terms of that, how do you view the the event at Pentecost with women prophesying and, and teaching in a public manner 
How do you view that in terms of the assembly? Do you believe that those are related incidents or are those unrelated? Well, I think I think that that Pentecost was simply I think that was the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy, that that would go on and continue as the spirit flowed out from Jerusalem to the entire world, as the spirit fell upon all kinds of people, as they became uh, followers of Jesus, then then women would, as we said a minute ago, with the the daughters of Philip, the evangelist, they began to prophesy. And so we we see women who proclaim the word of the Lord throughout the story of Acts because the spirit of God is coming upon them. And so um, I, I, that's, that's something that we see throughout the story. And, and, and again, just because women are prophesying doesn't mean that that's part of the assembly. And again, I think that's where 1 Corinthians 14 comes into play, is that Paul is specifically talking about the exercising of those spiritual gifts, including prophecy, and he he restricts women from participating in that way in the assembly. Okay, so from from your perspective, then the event that we see in Acts two with the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, even if we had women prophesying in public in that capacity or in that sense, it's a completely different context than what Paul's referring to in First Corinthians. Right. I, I do think that there is supposed to be some formality and some structure to what goes on during that time where the church comes together, especially to break bread and to proclaim the good news. I think Justin Martyr gives a great example of what the first century assembly was like. And and yes, the church got together in their homes and they did all kinds of other things together at different times and different places. But once a week, there was this special formal time of coming together that was done in a very orderly way. And that order can change, but I think there are some very specific guidelines and symbolism, again, that's part of our assembly. We break the same bread that we've been breaking for 2,000 years. We share the same cup that we've been sharing for 2,000 years. And a, and a man gets up to carry this burden of the word of the Lord, and he's been doing that. He, symbolically, of a man of God, gets up to continue bearing this burden forward that's been going on for thousands of years. To me, that's beautiful and special that these symbols continue to be perpetrated uh, throughout history as we carry on these traditions. Well, and I, I want to kind of compare and contrast for our audience again, because I think that's important for people who are, are listening to different sides uh, to make sure that they understand what you're saying and that they're not misrepresenting what you're saying. Because I, I think the biggest difference here is going to be through the framework. Uh, when you talk about a complementarian position and egalitarian position, um, you know, you, you've explained how you're going to look at the egalitarian position and say, well, I reject that framework because I think that, uh, you're, you know, or you think your basis starts in the creation, whereas the egalitarian will say, well, I think my basis started in the creation, but it, it didn't look like what you think you're, what it looked like. And then the complementarian position says, yeah, but I don't think it looked like what you looked like. And so, you know, that, that kind of starts two different paths already. Right. And so, where where I think so much of the egalitarian position is going to hear what you're saying and for the audience to understand why the egalitarian position disagrees and why you disagree with the egalitarian position is they're going to they're going to listen to what you say 
well, I won't say they, cause I'm not speaking on behalf of all egalitarians, but, um, from my perspective, when you say that the, the egalitarians I'm familiar with are going to look at that and say, well, yeah, of course there wasn't a whole lot of women. It was a patriarchal society. Women, women, I mean, that was a time of polygamy where women couldn't even fend for themselves at that time. And so of course you're not going to have a ton of women who even had accessibility to the same education or accessibility to the same opportunities, not because that's the way God designed it, but because that was a result of the curse. And that's the way that things had been for so many years. But even within that, where I think the egalitarian position has a strong point, they said, even within that, you see God appointing women and allowing women and blessing women to lead and to serve. So now that you've come to the New Testament, there's still a patriarchal society. I mean, it's, it's, it was, predominantly a patriarchal side, of course, in the first century and continued to be for, for many centuries in the world over. And up until not too long ago, I mean, it was still pretty much a patriarchal society. And some even argue that it still is to, to some extent. But I think that when you, when, when looking at these questions, what makes it, and I'm talking to the audience here, what makes it difficult for either the complementarian or the egalitarian position to just give a quick sentence answer is there's so much packed into that answer that can't be explained within that answer without giving so much back context to why they believe that way that has led them to that point. And so I am curious though, because, you know, I, I think you do, Lee pointed out, I mean, you see, you see, you have prophetesses in the old Testament and you, you, you have Deborah leading, and then you come to the new Testament and you have a lead, you have women who followed Jesus and who backed Jesus and who were a part of the discipleship. And we said, we may say, well, why is it presented as, as the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples? Well, had that, had that happened in today's society, it probably wouldn't have been called the 12. It would probably been called something completely different because you have men living in that society writing through a patriarchal lens, that's going to be their focus. And, you know, that why, that's why it was so scandalous the way, you know, you had these women following Jesus and his disciples. They were his disciples. There was more than 12 disciples. We just don't think of it in that sense. But so, something else that I'm curious about, and this, this kind of gets into the assembly, the non-assembly, but it seems that a lot of your, you lean heavy, and, mis, and please correct me because I don't want to misrepresent you, but you lean heavy in that idea of the responsibility, right? The, the man bearing the responsibility, and that's kind of equating and flowing over into the public worship. But I can't help but think of how many women teach children in church. And, and I'm talking about, for lack of better words, let's call it Bible class, um, which Lee and the, the one cup, no cup, no class or one cup, no Bible class. You know, they didn't do that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's a uh, moot. It was a moot point for us. We just didn't but, even have it. So. Just just a little funny jab at Lee. But, you know, women teach children and, and women teach other women in Bible class. And fr from hearing what you're saying, I, I could see the argument being made. Well, women have just as much responsibility to teach in teaching other women and, and and especially teaching children. The last group I would rather preach in front of a thousand males than have to teach a bunch of kids, especially teenagers, <laughs> and, and and have to and have to handle their parents afterwards and paint that target on my back. And so I, I wonder, with what you're saying, how much of this is because I can't help but just see a, an egalitarian cringe when they hear you talk about, well, you know, males need to take the burden and they don't, they don't, you know, they need to have that target on their back. And women are like, what do you mean take the target? You know, 
showing up at church and just being in a women's group, you may have the whole church hate you because you may say something that they don't like. And so the the idea of public assembly today seems to be quite different than even what was talked about in the church at Corinth. And this, you know, I'm sure we, we're going to disagree a little, a little, maybe even a lot on the idea of an assembly. Because when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you know, uh, I don't, I personally don't see the distinction being made where Paul's talking about women prophesying and then the Lord's Supper. Because, I mean, even in the next chapter, he says, and now I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts. So I don't think Paul's making like 20 distinctions and talking about, I'm talking about this group and this small group and this. I think he's talking about the same thing, but that's just something we disagree on. But even within the Lord's Supper, if that's the assembly, from everything I've studied, um, everything, and, and I may be wrong on this, but all the stuff I've studied, I mean, that was a common, that or that was a, it was considered a meal. It was truly a meal. And, you know, they weren't taking a thimble full of grape juice and a, and a, you know, little crumb of cracker. They were literally coming together to the point where some people were getting drunk and you can't get drunk no matter if you have a hundred proof in that little shot glass that the church hands out of, of grape juice. And so, Within that, it seems like part of their assembly was coming together, talking, fellowshipping with one another, which would have not just been the males talking. It would have been completely different. Um, And and that may lead into something we don't want to talk about in this conversation, because that gets into what did the assembly and what did church look like back then? But, you know, if you think of Chloe, it's her house. And I can't imagine Chloe sitting there saying, can't say anything for this one hour, guys. I, I can't do it. I'm sorry. When Paul's the one communicating with her, if anything, that's like the biggest representation of leadership, in my opinion. It's like, this is Chloe's house. And the fact that we would say, but for whatever reason in that hour, we don't actually, we don't want to just uh, paint a bullseye on her back uh, by asking her to lead a prayer in front of, you know, 30 Christians here. I don't know. I, I don't... I, I don't see what you're saying, but I understand why you're saying it. I'm just not, to me, I'm not convinced by that. So I was going to see if you might kind of expound on, on that whole idea a little bit more. Yeah, I, th- I think we're, that that's, that's a whole lot of different. Yeah, it's a lot. And it's, on, yeah. On that. Can you expound the next six hours on that, Wes, for <laughs> us, if you don't mind? And like I said, that's yeah. a lot of, of different topics kind of combined in one. And a lot of that has to do with the assembly and differences in right. understanding. But I am, well, let me ask this, instead of having you just say, hey, explain everything I just said. Let, let, let me just stick it to this. So first Kings 11, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. So it, it does appear that, you know, all of us would agree that whatever's happening in the Lord's Supper, that's an assembly. You know, whatever we want to, there's, whatever we want to call that, we would all agree that that is an assembly going on. And so it, it the fact they're meeting in Chloe's household, this is a home small church or small home church. Um, and they're coming together, they're eating the Lord's Supper do you think within that women weren't able to talk while they were partaking of the Lord's Supper as well? Or do you think that that was something where the women could vocally participate? It's hard to know. It's hard to know. I, I, and that's a great question. What did, what did it look like when they were, when they were sharing this meal? Um, I, I think about one of the earliest examples that I know of is, is Justin Martyr's description of the Lord's Supper and the way he talks about it um, is he talks about the president. He talks about the the man who presides over the Lord's Supper. The, the way it's translated usually is the president. The president will will bring out the, the cup, uh, the wine mixed with water and the bread 
Um, he doesn't describe it as a, you know, what we would think of as a fellowship meal where they're talking and discussing and different things. It's more of a formalized type of a thing. Now, whether or not it changed sometime during that hundred years or not, who knows? But, um, but, but I, I, I do think that whoever was presiding over that service, now, whether or not there was what we would call fellowship, which I hate to even use that word because fellowship right. is a partnership that we share. We're always in fellowship. Um, That's a potluck fellowship meal, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah, whether or not there was discussion, whether or not there was discussion during the 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 sharing of that food, I, I really don't know. But but I do think that looking at what Paul says in First Corinthians fourteen, looking at the way he even describes the meal in First Corinthians eleven, the way that um, Justin Martyr talks about it, the way that Jesus conducted it. All of those things put together, I would say that I do believe there was a man who presided over that supper, who led the congregation in prayer, who may have shared some thoughts about the bread and the wine, who brought everybody together in their thinking as they shared those things. So I do believe there was a man who presided over that taking of that meal. Now, whether or not there was discussion, that that's a little bit different because, again, if the whole congregation is talking amongst themselves, that's not really a role of leadership and teaching. And to your other point, and I don't, I, again, this could be a rabbit trail, but, but I, I think that it needs to be said that the protection element, that burden of protection, I only bring that up several times because that's one element of leadership. I think there's other elements and I think there's other reasons why men have that burden of responsibility. But I would say that to your point about teaching a Bible class or teaching your own children or teaching a, a ladies class, that all of those, you're right, those are all, all responsibilities and all burdens. But again, as you bring the entire church together, that responsibility grows. And I think, again, that's why when Paul describes the elders uh, to both Titus and Timothy, he talks about men having that burden of responsibility of being those elders, those shepherds of the whole church together. I mean, you could say in a lot of ways, Lydia had a household that she shepherded in some way. So she, you could say that she was a leader in her household, but as multiple households are brought together into an ecclesia of Jesus, into an assembly that that works together for the glory of Jesus in the world, that they are, that that leadership is a greater responsibility than any one household or any one small group within that larger group. So, so when I talk about that burden of responsibility, the more people you bring all together, the more people you assemble all together, the greater the responsibility becomes. No, I think that's a very, very fair point. And that if I can, unless Kevin, you have something else that you'd like to, no, to ask just, to follow up. Yeah. So I was just going to summarize what you're saying to make sure I understand in the audience as well. So you really see then, uh, to summarize, you would say that there's a clear distinction of, of whatever that assembly is, that that's a very sp specific uh, distinction, that this is an assembly where certain acts go on that... I don't want to use the word rules, but for it's, oversimplification, it's where there yeah. are certain rules and regulations that may not exist outside of that assembly when the church is gathered. But for that particular assembly, there is a there's a higher level of regulation, maybe something like that. Would that Code be a of conduct might be a might be a way to. OK. Put it. okay. Yeah. And I think fair, fair enough. 
you know, James, when James talks about the assembly, the word he uses there, and of course he's talking to a very Jewish audience, the word he uses there is is very similar to a synagogue. And I, I do believe that the first century ecclesia was very similar to the first century synagogue, only these were messianic people, both Jew and Gentile. And so the, the coming together, the formal uh, gathering together of themselves was a uh, was very similar to the synagogue or in the Greek world, ecclesia carried with it a civic assembly. And so the the people of the city would come together into a, an assembly, an ecclesia, and that probably had a code of conduct. It had a, a formal structure. And this is the way that we conduct ourselves in the ecclesia of whatever city. And so, yes, I think that the the Sunday gathering had some sort of a a code of conduct or a a flow to it so that it was done in Paul's words and decently in an order. Well, and I think that we see that in pretty much every aspect of our lives. I mean, in doing jujitsu, there are some things you do not do. Like you don't wear your shoes on the mat. You do not wear your, I mean, if you want to get an impromptu jujitsu lesson, just wear your shoes on the mat, you're going to get taken down and, and hurt. You don't, you just don't do that. You don't punch, you don't kick, you don't throw elbows. You can start standing up and do throws, but there's no striking. There are just some things you don't do whenever you do that. Whenever you play a game, there are certain things you don't do because it violates the, the rules, quote unquote, of the game. And the idea that there's a code of conduct, I don't think any honest Bible student, I hope I'm not committing the no true Scotsman fallacy here, but I don't think any honest <laughs> Bible student can look at the scriptures and what Paul says and not see that there's a code of conduct there. I mean, there, there absolutely is. But if I can, I'd like to move on to, to another question. One of the biggest, um, I, I don't want to, I don't know how I want to say this. I'm just going to go ahead and say it this way because it's my podcast and I can say what I want. But one of the biggest feathers in the cap of the egalitarian position is what Paul says at the church in Galatians, Galatians 3.28. And this is a passage that we're all familiar with, and I'm going to go ahead and read it now. Um, I'm just going to start in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, in this, it seems as though Paul is ushering in or speaking to a, a shift in the social equity that existed within his day and time. And whenever you mention the ecclesia as being a Greek term in which they would gather people together, it was a gathering. This seems to be the, the biggest talking point that many in the egalitarian camp make is that in this sense, the the delineations between rich and poor, the delineations between slave and three, the delineations between race, the delineations between male and female, those lines are obliterated under Christ. And this speaks in terms of salvation, which is why I wanted to read verse 27 first, but many make a broader application to say that those gender distinctive lines as it relates to the service of God those those lines are obliterated because whenever we think of the Levitical priesthood, you had men serving in the roles of priest, but now we are all priests, uh, according to what the Hebrew writer says, we are all priests. We all can draw near into that most holy place. And I think that that's true whether we're male or whether we're female. 
but what would your answer be to this idea of, of a greater social equity or a greater social equality in terms of Galatians 3 and 28? Is Paul giving a kingdom living principle here of how Christians should strive for a pre-sin kingdom ideals and equalities, or is there something else at play here? What are your thoughts on that? Such a good question. And I'm glad we're getting here because I, I think that this is so important because I think that in our modern Western world, we tend to think so much about equality. In fact, you use the phrase social equality. And, and I, I don't think that equality is a bad concept, but I think that, that it's not Paul's concept. It's not what Paul is driving at. What he continually drives at over and over again, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and even in the context of Galatians chapter 3, is not social equality, but is social oneness. And there's a difference. There's a difference between equality and oneness. My family, there's four of us, my, myself, my wife, my two boys, we are not equal, especially with my boys and I are not equals. We're, they are my subordinates for sure, but we are all one. We have oneness within our family, but we don't have equality. But I would say that in many ways, oneness is better than equality. My, my two boys are obviously equal um, in, in many ways. Obviously, one is the firstborn and one is the secondborn, but they're, they're equal. But, but I think we can see the tension that equality tends to lead towards sometimes. When we say, you guys are equal, and then I give two of them a piece of pie, what are they wondering? Who who got the who has the bigger pie? That's yeah. right, exactly. And so they're they're constantly measuring how much did he get, how much did he get, how much did he get, and we're con and that's what we do in the church, and and we continue to do this, and we continue to have this tension and this pulling at one another to say, wait, wait, Kevin got more than me, Lee got more than me, so and so got more than me. When we we fail to recognize that what what is actually being promoted, what should be promoted, is not equality but mutual submission. It's sacrificing to one another. What Paul says in Philippians chapter two, to have the mind of Christ is not to treat your brothers and sisters as your equals, is to look at them as if they're more significant than you are, is to treat them as more significant than you. What he's talking about in Galatians three, as far as no male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile, uh, no slave, no free, isn't to say that 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 we're all we we all have the same life now because they they don't have sameness the the life of a free person and the life of a slave person like it or not was very different the life of a jewish person and the life of a greek person was very different the life of a man and the life of a woman these were very different lives but they had oneness and that meant that if you were rich your money actually was going to be leveraged for the for the sake of your poor brother if you were free your freedom was leveraged for the sake of your slave brother if you were a man your maleness was leveraged for the sake of your female sister because now you have oneness and that's what you do in a family i'm the father of my household and so my life is very different than my son's life, but I leverage my fatherhood for the sake of my children. I leverage my wealth for the for the sake of my children because that's what you do when you have oneness. That's what the father and the son and the spirit do. Even though the son submitted to his father 
to do his father's will. And he took on the form of a servant. They didn't have equality, but they had oneness. And they leveraged who they were for the sake of the other. And that's what we have in the church or what we're supposed to have in the church is so that we leverage ourselves for the sake of others. And that's what marriage should be. That's what the complementarian marriage should be. That's the, the idea of complementarianism as it's applied to marriage. And it should be the way it's applied within the assembly or within the church at all, that our lives are very different. No matter who we are ethnically, no matter who we are socioeconomically, no matter what our gender, when we come into the church, we're very different. And our differences are not dissolved in Christ, but we are one, which means that we leverage our strengths and weaknesses for the sake of our brothers and sisters so that we share all things in common. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, when the brothers and sisters began to come together into one body, they began to share everything in common with each other. And so that that's what we really see, I think, in in Galatians 3, in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 2, Colossians 3, all of these passages about the the oneness in Christ isn't about sameness or everybody's going to get the exact same shape of pie. It's that we're going to share everything with each other. We're going to take care of each other as if we're not just, not just friends and even more than family, as if we're part of the exact same body. And, and that is, I mean, it, it's a, it's a far way away from, you know, the idea of like separate but equal kind of a thing. In fact, it's that we're, we're not separate. <laughs> we're together. We're together. It's about togetherness. It's about oneness. It's about recognizing that, yes, my sisters have a very different life than I have. And I need to leverage what I have for the sake of my sisters. My, my ethnically different brothers and sisters have a very different life than I have. And I need to leverage what I have for the sake of them. This is what oneness looks like. This is what family looks like. This is what they weren't doing at the church in Antioch when they, they kept their Jewish or their Gentile brothers rather at arm's length and not being one. And why Paul said what he says in Galatians chapter three is because it's about oneness. Well, brother, that whenever and that that perfectly illustrates one of the things that that I guess irritates me about how I used to read the Bible and how I used to approach the scriptures for so long, because so often we tend to pounce on a particular passage and we use it as a proof text to say, well, see here, this right here makes the egalitarian point and we miss the beauty of what you just described. I mean, I can't. I can't count and I cringe whenever I think about the number of times that I misuse the scriptures to make or prove some point that I had or that I wanted to make. And I completely miss sight of the forest for the trees. And whenever you think about it in terms of oneness and you think about it in terms of that familial bond that we have with one another spiritually through Christ, whenever we make this passage in Galatians about you know, letting women or allowing women to do this, that, or the other, or to take on a particular role that, that, you know, according to the complementarian position is not one that God has desired for them to take on. It's, it, it's so it, you miss all of that. And whenever you miss that, it just, it's, you just blew my mind. And that's why I'm having a hard time finding my words. Whenever my mind gets blown, I have a hard time finding words 
but I think that's just, that's beautiful. Kevin, what, what questions do you have at this point? Like, what do you want to follow? I know we're getting close to the end. Yeah, of I was going to say where are we at? Cause we had to cut off. So how far are we in our time? We're, we're sitting in a little over an hour, probably about an okay. hour and 10 minutes. Well, let's, let's go ahead and jump to the next question and to kind of go ahead and, um, and finish up here because we, I think we talked about this a little in the first, but I want to kind of bring it back to this because, um, on our show, we always like to focus on the things we have in common and not on our differences, even though we like to discuss differences, because I think differences are important to discuss, but um, hopefully we can all demonstrate we can treat one another with respect <laughs> in the process of doing so. Um, but, you know, I, I want to just bring it back to this. This really isn't a question, because I mean, I already know where we, we've discussed this, but, you know, when you, Wes, you even brought this up in the last episode, I'm pretty sure, but Ephesians 5.21, where Paul talks about how we're to submit to one another, and that you just you just talked about that in Galatians three as well. You brought that up that the really the whole gospel ethic is to serve one another. It's it and even the disciples at times some of some of them got called up and okay who who's going to be the you know can I can I sit on the right and left hand you know it's it's you bring the mother involved hey can my son sit in the right on your right and left hand and you know it's like a a parent going to the teacher hey can my teacher do this or can they do that and. And Jesus just kind of shakes his head and, and it's you, you've missed the whole boat here because it's not about one over the other. It's about one submitting to each other. And in case you want to know what that looks like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that. And that's what Jesus did. He showed us that ultimate submission to one another. And, I, you know, the, the problem is I, I definitely would consider myself an egalitarian. But and I've spoken to other egalitarians about this, and, and I really appreciate Dr. Linda King. And that's one reason why we had her on is because of the she's she's a lot like you in the way she approaches this and, and grace and mercy because this isn't so much about getting churches to see things a certain way as it is to understand one another and and, and where each other is coming from and to realize that some churches may need to do it a certain way because that's where they're at and uh, that's where their understanding is but not to as you pointed out dehumanize one another. And that's one of the points of, I think, Ephesians 5, 21, is we're supposed to be submitting to one another. And that even is cross-congregational. That doesn't always mean whatever the you know one person wants they should get, but it does mean we need to respect that and not paint with a broad brush that if I'm an egalitarian, not say, well, look, uh, you know, anybody who's a complementarian, they're, they're living in the past and they don't love the Lord and they just need to change or, you know, or a complementarian to say, well, anybody who's an egalitarian, they just... They've they've gone beyond scripture. They don't care about God anymore. They're just trying to keep up with culture. And I think part of that submitting to one another is is having conversations like this. And this is the best way that I have kind of summed it up in my mind, which I think this can sum up a lot of differences on some of these topics. But I think the question boils down to when we look at these passages like 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, are in First Corinthians fourteen. Are they, are they culturally presumptive and descriptive, or are they universally definitive and prescriptive? And and that's really the the question that it boils down to. I think in my mind is you know because where where I would disagree, and I don't know where Lee's at on some of this, but with First Corinthians eleven, Paul uh, Lee pointed out that Paul definitely lays some guidelines down. The question is. Was that just for Corinth? Was that just for that place and time? Was that just for that culture? Uh, was that just for that assembly? Was that 
a special assembly. Well, you know, what exactly was that? And then how long is it to last? And is that something for us today? And those are the those are the questions where I think fundamentally there's disagreement. And so when people are studying this, they want to know, well, why do people see these texts so differently? It's not because of what the Bible says. I think everyone agrees on what the Bible says <laughs> pertaining to these things. It's where is the Bible culturally limited? And when is there universal truth being taught? Those are not easy questions to answer. And, and we didn't even get into some of the questions of, you know, kind of especially within the churches of Christ that there's a lot of discussion on, well, what about a Bible class and can a woman ever lead or teach in any capacity and those types of things. And there, there's the reason why there's a lot of disagreement on this is because it's this is a, this these are complex things to discuss. This isn't. Oh, here's a book, chapter, and verse. Boom! I got you, Wes. Aha! You just lost. And, and it and it's not even about winning or losing. It's about it growing, shouldn't be anyway. Yeah, growing together and working together and understanding one another. And and to me, that's that's that mutual submission is difficult because it's easy for me to submit to someone who I agree with and all things, and it's easy for somebody to submit to me if they agree on it. It's when those disagreements come about that I think we forget what those passages are all about, being one in Christ, having that mutual submission. And so um, I just want to say thank you for coming on and having this discussion. I think it's been absolutely fantastic. Hopefully we've been able to tease out some some of the different uh, verses so that now we've had Dr. Linda King and Wes McAdams both on and I'm sure we've not even scratched the surface and people are wondering, well, what about this and what about that and what about that? But, you know, we may we may have to continue this discussion, um, you know, later with other folks as well as we do. You know, if you have any questions, let us know. That's what our Facebook group is for, too, so that you can ask us these questions. And a lot of this stuff we may just not know. And, and, and some of this is in the gray. We talk about how faith tends to be in the gray area. And. Whenever we try to make something simple, whenever we try to take a complex concept and make it simple, we only muddy the waters. And uh, I, I think that, Wes, you've done a phenomenal job at explaining your position. Um, some of it I agree with, some of it I don't like most people, <laughs> uh, you know, on just about any topic. Um, Lee and I, we feel the same way with each other all the time. We're like, yeah, I agree with you on this, I disagree with you on that. But, uh, man, it's just a great Bible study, and I appreciate you coming on the show and uh you're just a good brother in Christ, man. I appreciate it. Yes, Wes, I want to echo everything Kevin just said, man. It's so much fun having these conversations with you because you're you're so disarming. And I mean that, and I mean that in a good way. Like we can talk about things and things we disagree about. And I never feel attacked. I never feel like you're jumping down my throat. I never feel like your mission is to make me see that I'm wrong and that you're right. You you exemplify you exemplify Christ. And I just, I commend you for, for just your spirit and for all the work you're doing with the radically Christian podcast and for what you're doing in, in your work as a, as a preacher brother. I just, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to name you amongst the, the people in, in my corner and the people that, that I have known that have contributed positively to my life and to my spiritual growth. So thank you so much, man. Well, thank you both. I, I appreciate y'all so much. I appreciate your spirit and I appreciate what you're doing with this podcast and, and your willingness to talk through some of these incredibly difficult things. And I think what you're saying right now speaks to the the warning of this whole conversation between egalitarianism and complementarianism is that the power struggle is exactly 
what the fall is all about. The fall is that power struggle. And what Jesus does is come in and he resolves that that uh, that struggle. He resolves that tension through his grace, through his mercy, and then us extending that grace and mercy and respect and love and submission to one another. And when we live out the gospel, then we don't have to be engaged in a power struggle all the time. So when our churches are engaged in a power struggle on either side, trying to maintain power or trying to change the the, the reins of power, there's a problem. And that's more indicative of the fall than it is of the gospel. Amen, brother. Well, thank you again. Well, and I wanted to say one more thing. I'm not going to get into specifics, but Wes, Go ahead, Columbo. A, get Wes, Wes has had a very difficult um weekend and a very busy weekend. And uh, when I talked to him today, I said, man, how are you doing? And Wes said, I'm, I'm, I'm just tired, man. <laughs> he goes, I've, I've, I've really, really just been, uh, been put through it this weekend with a lot of different things. And the fact that, uh, that he still came on here tonight, because this is exhausting. And especially in the position Wes is in where we're basically asking him the questions, um, instead of him just asking, he's answering the questions. It's a very exhausting thing. I, I don't think a lot of people realize this when we have a a guest on here. And even when, you know, Lee and I just do a podcast, we're, we're worn out after the podcast. Even when we have energy before it's draining. And, uh, we usually record, you know, we've been going at this now for what, three hours, two and a half, three hours. And so for Wes to come on and do this already after he's had a very busy last few days, um, I just want to give you a extra special brotherly thank you <laughs> for, for coming on and doing this. Cause it's tough enough when you're fresh. Um, I can only imagine when you're worn out. So thanks for, for just being a good trooper here and, uh, staying with us tonight. Yes. Thank, yeah. Thank Man, thank you very much. And with that being said, we'll go ahead and sign off. We want to thank you, but also we want to thank our audience. We appreciate all of you. If you have any questions for us, uh, any comments at all, shoot us an email at the email address in the show notes. Join our Facebook group. Join the discussion group. It's growing quite a bit each day. There's good discussions that go on there. It is a safe place to ask questions and to to vent, even if you need to vent. We do have some rules that we, or a code of conduct, if you prefer, that we have in place for this group. Women are um, not allowed to comment. Oh, come on, Kevin. <laughs> come on, man. You're killing me. That's not true. Oh, but in I any case, to, man. yeah, I you had, had to. to. Yeah. Come on. I, I, I teed it up for you, baby. <laughs> but nevertheless, we thank all of you out there. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. Share our podcast with your friends. We appreciate all of you, and we bid you all Godspeed.